Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about Christianity 301, Upper Level Serious Christianity. You can find inappropriate conversations on Stitcher.com. This might be the only promotional entry I do, or at least I'm going to have very few today, because I really want to focus and dive into Christianity 301, picking up with where I left off on a page that I put up at the website at www.inappropriateconversations.org, something like a year and a half ago. That was called Christianity 201, Time for Solid Food. And although there may be some hints of reference points back and forth between these two topics, simply because, well, one is foundational to the other, I thought it might be best if I hit this sort of approach to a more mature view of Christianity, this time in, a, in an audio format, rather than just on a blog. But to get us started, let me begin first by looking back at that blog post and looking at some of the questions that I referred to then as being too advanced for Christianity 201. Here's how the blog post itself ended. Is there a Christianity 301? Certainly. Not only is it easy to conceive of senior-level undergraduate studies in Christianity, the learning process never ends. Still, Christianity 201 is the biblical foundation upon which any such advanced education must rest. How do we interact with other faiths? What about neo-faiths? Some of them new, as in New Age, and others old as an earth worship. Why didn't I answer the question I raised earlier about sexual orientation? Hasn't that become just one of the many pressing social issues that misguided Christians have responded to with legalistic proclamations? Clearly, Christianity 201 is not the end of scholarship about what Jesus taught and did and how to interpret the Bible without betraying Christ. It's a start. More likely than not, the next step is to prayerfully consider these passages and answer questions and challenges from those who find more comfort in the law than in the Lord. This is our starting point. And, just to lay a little groundwork, the question that I most likely want to look back to, to that previous blog post, and talk through from, hey, what are some of the bigger questions we can answer now? Now that we've sort of dismissed some of the mistaken ideas, some of the naive ideas from what might, might be Christianity 101, an Adam and Eve understanding that doesn't grow beyond that, that doesn't take Jesus seriously when he used phrases like, some men are born that way. Here's the question I asked in that article. Can homosexuals love God as fully as any of us can and love their neighbors as they love themselves? I won't presume to give an answer because that's probably more advanced coursework based on the current state of anti-intellectualism in the church today. It is a good question, though. Based on everything Jesus declined to say about homosexuality in the Gospels, it is a good question. And to one degree or another, I will at least hint at the answers to that question here in Christianity 301. You know, quick alert, in the most recent Inappropriate Conversations, which was a feedback show, I did include some feedback I received about you know, how challenging it can be for some when there are episodes that focus primarily upon religion and include a great deal of scripture quotation. 
this is going to be one of those episodes. I say this up front because my focus on biblical illiteracy, a couple of inappropriate conversations back, was broader. I was saying, hey, if you don't have any belief that Christianity has anything to say to the world, at least listen to some of the examples that I wanted to use in that show. Because what I wanted to drive home there was that Judeo-Christian concepts are so embedded within the mythology of our culture that we're not communicating with each other well, certainly not fully, if we don't grant that, and if we don't go some ways down the road to understanding that. This one, this one's not the same thing. I'm not primarily speaking to a non-Christian world about Christian concepts that they know without realizing it. This time I'm talking to Christians, face-to-face, maybe even in-your-face, and I would understand if somebody who came to this show from a non-Christian perspective took a pass. On the other hand, there might be some very interesting voyeuristic curiosity because I am going to speak quite freely and quite frankly about what the Bible really says, and you might find it shockingly different from what you see on TV talk shows. The other thing is this is going to be an episode where the different drummer isn't just cordoned off into a section of the show, but really embedded throughout. And when I get to the different drummer, I'll I'll talk about some of the reasons for that, that I'm simultaneously using him as a key reference for this particular Inappropriate Conversations show, but I'm also responding to some of his critics. I probably delayed by more than two years reading the book that I'm going to refer to and quote at length because I was warned away from what a mistake it would be to invest any intellectual resources in that particular property. I would take the opposite view, that it was a mistake from people who warned me off of Rob Bell to begin with. So maybe the way to go here is to say, we got some questions we want to consider. I want to answer from what I built upon on that previous article to say, hey, this really isn't a dichotomy between the law and the Lord. Not because there isn't a distinction to be made, but because everything Jesus did, which I outlined in Christianity 201, makes the case for us. The answer is the Lord. The Lord is the law. So let me go to the beginning of John's gospel with a question. When we talk about the Bible being the word of God, what do we really mean? I'm going to quote John chapter 1, verses maybe 1 through 4, and I'm going to use the New American Standard Bible version that I've complained about in the past. And again, I'm doing so for the same reason that I've referred to it in the past. It's been widely embraced by people who are far more conservative than I am. So I'm using a version of the Bible that is theirs. It really has, well, quite literally their fingerprints all over it. Here's the way the Gospel of John begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to be through him, and without him nothing came to be. What came to be through him was life, and this life was the light of the human race, the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. John 1, verses 1 through 5. It seems obvious to me that in this passage, the Word is not the Bible. And one of the biggest problems in Christianity today is Christians who worship the Bible and not truly the Word. The Word of God, from a scriptural perspective, is Jesus Christ. So, with this in mind, with a good understanding of how far afield we are, I intend to speak today from the perspective of Peter. Because previously in Christianity 201, I spoke extensively from the perspective of Jesus, Paul, and James. I will touch again, no doubt, on all three of those figures to one degree or another. 
but the one that I sort of left out was Peter, and that seems like a good place to go to hit this question of whether or not it's possible for somebody who traditional views of the church, traditional church leaders, have thought of as being unclean or sinful or unworthy or incapable of being saved, is it possible for the Holy Spirit to work in their lives? And what does it mean if it does mean that it's possible? And what does it mean if it doesn't? So let me begin, just right up front, with the Acts of the Apostles, chapters 10 and 11, and a story from Peter. Now, Peter had been initially unimpressed by the conversion of Paul. Paul had been sent out, and his mission from the very beginning uh, was to share the gospel with Gentiles. So you've got this divide between Jew and Gentile, where essentially Jewish people at the time viewed themselves as God's chosen, and Gentiles were viewed as being out, outcast, uh, not part of it. Uh, Conversion was necessary, in other words, to be part of God's kingdom from a Jewish perspective. You needed to be within Judaism. And the conflict in the early church at the time was a conflict over whether or not Paul's ministry to the Gentiles meant that first and foremost, all of those Gentiles simply had to convert to Judaism. The way it played out, and I think this is obvious today for anybody who even has a casual understanding of the differences between Christianity and Judaism, is that no. The conclusion was widely drawn, not just by Paul, but later by Peter, that it was not necessary for people who had been disobeying the law, or unaware of the law, or perhaps even indifferent to everything in what Christians call the Old Testament. Was it possible for them to be infilled with the Holy Spirit? Was it possible for them to be part of the body of Christ? Was it possible for them to be saved? Here is Peter's story in Acts chapters 10 and 11. Now, there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion who was one of the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. And in the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw a vision, an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa, and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, As they were on their way approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, but he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground, and there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And a voice came to him the second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, 
beheld the three men who had been sent by Cornelius. Having asked directions for Simon's house, they appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs, and accompany, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. And on the next day he got up, and they went away with him, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, and fell at his feet, and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. As he talked with him, he entered, and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask, for what reason have you sent for me? Cornelius said, Four days ago to this hour I was praying in my house, during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments, and he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting in Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went out doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he became visible, not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely 
No one can refuse the water for those to be baptized who receive the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. The story continues in Acts chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles too had accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers confronted him, saying, You entered the house of uncircumcised people and ate with them? Peter began to explain it to them step by step. And when he was done, covering the entire story end to end, he got to the crucial moment. As I began to speak, he said, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift he gave to us when we came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to be able to hinder God? When they heard this, they stopped objecting and glorified God, saying, God has then granted life-giving repentance to the Gentiles too. God has given life-giving repentance to homosexuals too. The answer to the question of whether homosexuals are capable of loving God and loving their neighbor is obvious. And therefore, if the most cataclysmic thing that Peter had ever dealt with, causing him to completely reverse his position, to essentially abandon everything he held dear about Judaism, you know, his nickname was The Rock. He was a stubborn person. If he was willing to walk away from all that, I think we've got to ask ourselves some serious questions whenever we hear Christians talking about the importance of following either the law or the traditions of Judaism as some sort of prerequisite for being a quote-unquote true Christian. Now, I don't want to get into a discussion about what is or is not true Christianity, but I will say that there is something about the word truth that should mean a little bit more to Christians than we sometimes are willing to grant. When Jesus says in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, he is saying that he is truth, and that wherever something is true, even something potentially as mundane as a mathematical formula, Jesus is saying that's him. He is there. And we'll get to Rob Bell in just a minute. He may make some claims that would suggest that, hey, you know, it's not that Christianity has an exclusive claim on truth. It's not that other you know, philosophies, other religions, other worldviews have no truth. What we do know, though, is that wherever there is truth, there is Christ. How big of a deal was this? How big of a deal, really, was the conflict between Peter and Paul? Well, Paul records that for us in a letter called Galatians, his message to the church at Galatia. These are Paul's words, beginning in chapter 2. I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But I did so in private, to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we had had in Jesus Christ in order to bring us into bondage, that we would not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, 
What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectively worked for Peter in his apostleship, to the circumcised, effectively worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be the pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw himself aloof, fearing the party of circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, also named Peter, in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? We are Jews by nature, speaking of the apostles, and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we also have been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. As I hope I've established, if not in the article Christianity 201, just here in the first section of Christianity 301, any time a pressing social issue bubbles up and somebody who claims to be a Christian begins citing the Torah, we might want to remind them that Paul has made it crystal clear that we are a transgressor when we do this. We are not in a position to presume that anybody else, or even ourselves, are held accountable to those laws. On the other side of the different drummer segment, I hope to get to this idea of civil and ceremonial laws. I've named some different drummers who are quick to point out that the law is still in effect to one degree or another because Jesus only fulfilled part of the law. He fulfilled the civil and ceremonial laws, but the moral and sexual laws still exist. And I ask, publicly and formally, of people like John Eldridge, of people like Hank Hanegraaff, show me the chapter and the verse. Where does Peter, who had this surrealistic vision telling him that the law is gone, that there is no such thing as clean or unclean, that the Holy Spirit tells you and sends you out to do ministry to people who are hurting, who are suffering, or who are, hey, let's even drop the word, sinful. The law has nothing to do with it. 
The law is gone. Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. The law has faded away. And Paul felt so strongly about it that he went, he went on the record. He put pen to paper. He sent a letter that he expected to be read not just by the church in Galatia, but by others. And in that letter, he details a face-to-face confrontation with Peter, where he basically calls the rock upon whom the church was made, a man who most Roman Catholics believe was their very first pope in one way or another, and he calls that man a hypocrite. Why? Why did Paul turn to Cephas and say to him, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles but not like the Jews, how is it that you can compel Gentiles to live like Jews? How could he say that to him? Unless he was reaffirming what Paul has held all along, that the law is gone. Now, Jesus didn't get rid of everything. He referred specifically to two verses on multiple occasions. And those two verses have a lot to do with what Christianity is supposed to be all about. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, talks about loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. And Jesus adds to that list, your mind. That's what this advanced coursework is really all about. Trying to draw the distinction between Christians who are willing to love God with all their mind and those who are afraid to love God with their mind. Afraid to put the true power of faith to work by trusting the knowledge of God that he is trying to convey to each one of us. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 ends with the phrase, Love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is what Jesus preached. This is what Paul affirms. This is what Peter learned the hard way. This is what Christianity is all about. So, is it a problem for a Christian to engage openly in fellowship with somebody who's not a Christian, whether they be a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim, or whether they be an atheist, or somebody who's actually never heard, never considered, and never cared to consider any aspect of their spirituality before? No, it's not a problem. What God declares to be clean, a path that the Lord paves, is a path that we should walk, even if that path takes us into fellowship with women who've had abortions, with doctors who perform abortions, with homosexuals, with anyone you can name. Because essentially, Jesus first came in the Gospels, walked the walk, and talked the talk, and then told us to go and do likewise. Let's hear from Jesus before we get into the different drummer segment. John chapter 10 begins this way. Truly I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs um, some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him, because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him, because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what these things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, 
he will be saved, and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes in to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand, and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolves coming, and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them, and scatters them. He flees, because he is a hired hand, and not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my Father." A division occurred among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and he is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? John, chapter 10. So Jesus is saying, here in the Gospels, long, frankly, in months, before he was crucified, long before his resurrection, foretelling those events in a parable of the Good Shepherd, but also laying down a very clear principle that he wanted his apostles to understand. They were not the only sheep. The Jewish people were not the only sheep. Those who did their best to follow the law in its entirety were not the only sheep. The trick is not, how good of a lamb are you? The trick is, do you recognize the voice of the Lord? The voice of the Lord described earlier in the Acts passages shared by Peter was also described as the Spirit. So there's a combination here where we're reviewing, we're reviewing the voice of the Lord and the Holy Spirit as being comparable concepts. If the Holy Spirit leads you as a Christian into ministry with people, that the televangelists you might catch on the you know after the news at night will tell you were sinful, that Pat Robertson would suggest you have nothing to do with. Well, why are you listening to people? who reject what Paul said, who reject what James said, who reject what Peter said, and who, above all, clearly based on this passage in John chapter 10, reject what Jesus said. So let me lay it on the line. There are people out there who are pretty quick to come in, like thieves and robbers and wolves, saying that, hey, Christianity means this. Christians hate homosexuals. Oh, do they? Jesus said, he has other sheep which are not of this pasture, and who are we to judge what those sheep are, where their background is, what their lineage is, what their genetics are, what their experience is? The person who decides who is part of the fold is the shepherd, not the other sheep, and certainly not the wolves, who may have nothing more than the goal of dividing and conquering. And I don't even have the greatest amount of scorn for the wolves. I truly have the greatest amount of scorn for wolves in sheep's clothing. Presuming that they're Christian, or pretending to speak on behalf of Christianity, and telling us who's in and who's out. Well, if you allow a woman to speak in church, you're going to hell. 
if you don't condemn homosexuals or if you have any tolerance whatsoever for your gay people trying to live committed lives with each other, you are going to hell. If you don't vote this particular way on one issue, like, I don't know, maybe abortion, you are going to hell. Well, maybe it's time we reassessed what we mean by the idea of going to hell. And maybe we should look at it from the perspective of our different drummer, Rob Bell. But as we go there, I first want to remind ourselves that any time any one of us makes a decision about which sheep are part of the flock and which sheep are not, we are committing the ultimate sin. We are blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. We are presuming that we have some say that only the voice of God truly has. We are violating the first one or two of the Ten Commandments by forgetting who God is and forgetting who we are and presuming through some form of idolatry that we have some say over who gets in and who doesn't. And what makes me more angry about this than anything else is most people play a game of pin the tail on the donkey, scripturally speaking, with John chapter 14 verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said. Well, Jesus said, he's the one who decides. So a lot of this legalistic approach to say, hey, there's a group of good people here and there's a group of bad people here. And I'm not sure all the good people are in. I'm just sure about me. And I'm totally sure none of those bad people are in because the Bible tells me so. Well, if by the Bible tells me so, Notice the air quotes. What you mean is that in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, you have to be a Christian to get in. I think you're misreading John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus says he decides who's part of his flock and who is not. But four chapters earlier, Jesus warned his apostles that there's going to be some people in my flock who you don't even know. They don't qualify. They're not Jewish enough for you. Or maybe... Maybe, what we're talking about right now, they're not Christian enough for you. If you've decided that you got one up on Jesus, that you got this word here, that instead of being Jesus Christ, which is clearly what John believed the word meant, the word word meant, you got this word here in the Bible, and the Bible is a law of sorts. And if you can't have the Old Testament law anymore, because, you know, heaven forbid, I guess we're stuck. You know, if Peter and James and Paul and Jesus all agree the law is gone, and maybe the law is gone. But maybe I can treat the Gospel of John as a new law. And it's got all the rules. And Jesus has to follow these rules. Well, hang on to your hat for a second. Jesus doesn't have to follow any man-made rules. Jesus doesn't even have to follow rules written down in the Bible, whether they're inspired by the Holy Spirit or not. When Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me, he means he decides. But he's already told us. He's going to pick... And he's going to choose from, well, from people we don't think belong. Now, heaven help the Christian who's decided that they have some say in who belongs and who doesn't. But also, heaven help the Christian who has read the Gospels in their entirety, who presumably has hung on every word Jesus has said and still have no idea what Jesus meant by heaven and what Jesus meant by hell. There is a blog post up at www.inappropriateconversations.org very recently titled Hell, Bell, and Reading Well. And it's essentially me telling the story of why it took me so long 
not only to read the book Love Wins by Rob Bell, but even to consider taking seriously when I did. If I had read this book a year ago, I would have gone into the reading of it from a critical perspective. You know, I found out something, you know, maybe between high school and college, senior year in high school, sophomore year in college, that there is a difference between the reading that you do in high school because it's required of you and you're going to have to write a book report and the reading you do because you are truly studying something. That book report type reading, you know, you're reading for a purpose. It's very, it's very determined. Um, you're looking for things that you can write about. You're not really giving the author a fair shot. And I've spoken about bosses that I've had in the past who were quick to tell me that they'd read the Bible all the way through. Well, they'd read the Bible all the way through with a red pen in hand, looking for everything that they could complain about, everything that would seem to invalidate the claims. They were doing a book review and not really, truly reading the book. So I'm glad I gave a little bit of time and didn't just read Rob Bell right off the bat, um, because I don't think I would have gone in with the kind of open mind that I needed. I needed to read Love Wins as a book with the Bible in one hand and Bell's text in another, and not with my view of tradition in one hand instead of the Bible. And also, of course, not refusing to read it. So that blog post includes three passages from the book Love Wins, which is my effort to sort of say, hey, if you've heard that this book says there's no such thing as hell, read it again. You've been lied to. You've deceived yourself, perhaps, if you're a Christian, or you've been deceived by others. And I won't restate the case for that there, because I choose to share a few other passages instead here, partly speaking about Bell as different drummer. But first, it probably makes sense to just talk a little bit about Rob Bell, period. If you haven't heard Rob Bell before, there's a couple of ways of, of getting information about him that I think are very entertaining. One is the Pete Holmes podcast, You Made It Weird. This year, in fact, not that long ago, there was a fairly lengthy episode of that podcast recorded, essentially not so much even an interview, but a casual conversation between Holmes and Bell. But I'm going to go straight to Wikipedia and just kind of deal with some of the, you know, the nuts and bolts. Like, Rob Bell Jr. was born in Michigan in 1970. He's an American author and pastor. He's also appeared in a video series. He was the founder of Mars Hill Bible Church in Granville, Michigan, which is not the same as other churches named Mars Hill. He pastored that church until 2012. Under his leadership, Mars Hill was one of the fastest-growing churches in America, a fact I find to be completely irrelevant, to be honest. And if you've listened to any episodes of the other podcast on this feed, Walk the Earth, you'll know how strongly I believe that fastest-growing church attendance is an irrelevant statistic. But I first encountered him through a video series called NUMA, a series of short films. Now, he isn't necessarily the author or the producer behind each one of those, but he is the face of those films. He attended Wheaton College, which is a Christian college, formed a rock band, an alternative kind of rock band when he was there, and was exploring a career in music versus a career in ministry. His formation of Mars Hill Church, him and his wife, kind of led them to say, hey, it's time to think about this whole thing a little bit differently. It's time to, what I say is, it's time to take the Bible more than just a little bit more seriously. In his writings, Bell says, I affirm the truth anywhere, in any religious system, in any worldview. If it is true, it belongs to God. This lines up with what I shared earlier. If Jesus says, I am the truth, and we find truth somewhere, we have found Jesus there. 
This is part of the reason that I don't believe that there is a yet open warfare between science and religion, because to the degree that science is truth, to the degree that there are things that we've proven, things that we've come to understand, we have taken steps closer to the complexity of God, which is far beyond the ability for any poetry, no matter how rich, no matter how famous, to convey. So, Bell has, since stepping down, been working on other multimedia projects, and I won't go into them here. Some of them didn't pan out. Um, There may be a talk show in the future, it's hard to say. But, to me, the strength of Bell is in two books that I've quoted on this show. I've previously quoted The Beginning of Love Wins, and I've previously quoted from near the end of a book he wrote with Don Golden called Jesus Wants to Save Christians Too. Bell's perspective is, if nothing else, biblical. But don't make the mistake of reading any shorthand into that term. Biblical doesn't mean religious right. Biblical doesn't mean um, fire and brimstone, necessarily. Biblical means whatever the Bible says. So let me share a few passages from Bell's work, from the book Love Wins, where he speaks directly about heaven and hell. And literally, in this book, he goes through every single instance where the term hell is used, and kind of isolates and you know diagrams kind of what those sentences really mean. What is Jesus talking about? What is John in the in the Revelation, the Apocalypse? What's he talking about? Or even references to the Old Testament, which don't line up as clearly and cleanly as some people may think. Quoting Bell, in reading all of the passages in which Jesus uses the word hell, what is so striking is that people believing the right or wrong things isn't his point. He's often not talking about beliefs as we think of them. He's talking about anger and lust and indifference. He's talking about the state of his listeners' hearts, about how they conduct themselves, how they interact with their neighbors, about the kind of effect they would have on the world. Jesus did not use the word hell to try to compel heathens and pagans to believe in God so they wouldn't burn when they die. He talked about hell to very religious people to warn them about the consequences of straying from their God-given calling and identity to show the world God's love. This is not to say that hell is not a pointed, urgent warning, or that it isn't intimately connected with what we actually do believe, but simply to point out that Jesus talked about hell to the people who considered themselves in, warning them that their hard hearts were putting their inness at risk, reminding them that whatever chosenness or election meant, whatever special standing they believed they had with God was always, only, ever about their being the kind of transformed, generous, Loving people through whom God could show the world what God's love looks like in flesh and blood. Jesus didn't talk about unbelievers going to hell. He talked about people who were failing to love God and love their neighbor as they love themselves, as having their future in peril. So what does Jesus say about heaven? Well, heaven for Jesus wasn't a less real place It was more real. This is Bell speaking. The dominant cultural assumptions and misunderstandings about heaven have been at work for so long, it's almost automatic for many people to think of heaven as ethereal, intangible, esoteric, and immaterial. Floaty, dreamy, hazy. Somewhere else. People in white robes with perfect hair, floating by on clouds, singing in perfect pitch. But for Jesus, heaven is more real than what we experience now. This is true for the future, when earth and heaven become one, but also for today. 
To understand this, let's return to that Greek word ion, the one that we translate as age in English. We saw earlier how ion refers to a period of time with a beginning and an end. Another meaning of ion is a bit more complex and nuanced, because it refers to a particular intensity of experience that transcends time. Whether an experience is pleasurable or painful, in the extreme moments of life what we encounter is time dragging and flying, slowing down and speeding up. That's what ion refers to, a particular intense experience. Ion is often translated as eternal in English, which is an altogether different word from forever. Let me be clear. Heaven is not forever in the way that we think of forever, as a uniform measurement of time like days and years marching endlessly into the future. That's not a category or a concept we find in the Bible. This is why a lot of translators chose to translate ion as eternal. By this, they don't mean the literal passing of time. They mean transcending time, belonging to another realm altogether. To summarize then, sometimes when Jesus used the word heaven, he was simply referring to God, using the word as a substitute for the name of God. Second, sometimes when Jesus spoke of heaven, he was referring to the future coming together of heaven and earth, and what he and his contemporaries called life in the age to come. And third, and this is where things get really, really interesting. When Jesus talked about heaven, he was talking about our present, eternal, intense, real experiences of joy, peace, and love in this life, this side of death, and the age to come. Heaven for Jesus wasn't just some day. It was a present reality. Jesus blurs the lines, inviting the rich man and us into the merging of heaven and earth, the future and present, here and now. To say it again, eternal life is less about a kind of time that starts when we die, and more about a quality and vitality of life lived now in connection to God. Eternal life doesn't start when we die. It starts now. It's not about the life that begins at death. It's about experiencing the kind of life now that can endure and survive even death. We live in several dimensions, up and down, left and right, forward and backward, three to be exact. And yet we've all had experiences when those three dimensions weren't adequate. Moments when we were acutely, overwhelmingly aware of other realities just beyond this one. At the front edge of science, string theorists are now telling us that they can show us the existence of at least 11 dimensions. If we count time as the fourth dimension, that's seven dimensions beyond what we now know. Hi there, this is Rick Moyer, the host of the Take Him With You weekly podcast. My wife Amy and I talk every week about all sorts of cool geeky things going on around our house. Plus, we have some uh, positive words of encouragement and then a subject every week that is sure to uh, make you think a little bit and hopefully encourage you for the week to come. That's our goal. Visit us at TakeHimWithYou.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Take Him With You. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Thanks. So to tie back in with the blog post currently on inappropriateconversations.org, Bell believes in both heaven and hell. You've been deceived if you've been told otherwise. In fact, he goes into much more detail from the short passages I shared, using example after example 
of what heaven and what hell are. From a different drummer perspective, I think I want to stop here and say, yeah, I'm recommending you read the book Love Wins. I wouldn't be sharing so many sections of it if I felt any differently. But I want to use more of these passages in the latter part of the show to connect some of the dots between what does it mean to say we need to think differently? And how does it tie into inappropriate conversations? Because if Christianity 301 answers some of the questions that were raised in Christianity 201, that yes, we have much to learn from people who have totally different faiths from us. And maybe, just maybe, they have something to learn from us too. And that there isn't anything dangerous about rubbing elbows with those people. Because Jesus demonstrated during his life that he was rubbing elbows with all kinds of people. Some of them were inside the faith, but there are examples of people that Jesus interacted with who weren't Jewish. He'd tell them that his primary mission was with the Jewish people, but then after death, he sent Paul out on a primary mission with the Gentiles. No, we've got answers to these questions. We don't have to wonder anymore. The point, though, that I would make going forward is if I consider myself to be a radical moderate, and consider myself to be so, not just from the political perspective, but also from the perspective of religion, from the perspective of my relationship with Christianity. Well, what are we really talking about? Or in other words, where are the fundamental problems with a liberal worldview? And where are the fundamental problems with a conservative worldview when it comes to Christianity 301? As we've learned, Peter was a stubborn figure. This is the uh, disciple who denied Jesus three times after boldly proclaiming that he wouldn't. This is the disciple who in one conversation in Mark chapter 8, simultaneously is identified as the rock and given that nickname by Jesus for being really the first to really recognize, at least to begin to recognize, that Jesus was the Messiah. But just a few moments later, Jesus rebukes him, says, get behind me, Satan. Your views are of man, not of my kingdom. So the thing I think I would say about Peter is that his journey reflected a growth, a growth in knowledge, a growth in understanding, a growth in wisdom. And to pick back up with Rob Bell, quoting from a chapter called Here is the New There, here's what he says about disciples, kind of dismissing this idea that in heaven we're going at that moment of death to suddenly be transformed into people who know everything. That we have gone, in the part of our lifetime we can remember, through a learning process of building relationships and gaining understanding from those relationships. And that is going to continue, you know, if you're Christian, you believe that's going to continue eternally. Here's Bell. Jesus called disciples, students of life, to learn from him how to live in God's world, God's way. Constantly learning and growing and evolving and absorbing. Tomorrow is never simply a repeat of today. Much of the speculation about heaven, and more important, the confusion, comes from the idea that in a blink of an eye, we will automatically become totally different people who know everything. But our heart, our character, our desires, our longings, those things take time. Jesus called disciples in order to teach us how to be and what to be. His intention is for us to be growing progressively in generosity, 
forgiveness, honesty, courage, truth-telling, and responsibility, so that as these take over our lives, we are taking part more and more and more and more in life in the age to come, now. The flames of heaven, it turns out, lead us to the surprise of heaven. Jesus tells a story in Matthew 25 about people invited to, quote, the kingdom prepared for them since the creation of the world. And their first reaction is surprise. They start asking questions, trying to figure it out. Interesting, that. It's not the story of people boldly walking in through the pearly gates, confident that because of their faith, beliefs, or even actions, they'll be welcomed in. It's a story about people saying, What? Us? When did we ever see you? What did we ever do to deserve it? In other stories, he tells, very religious people who presume that they're in hear from Jesus, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Heaven, it turns out, is full of the unexpected. So if we grant that heaven's full of the unexpected, I think it gives us the answer to what might be a question in the minds of some Christians. Who knows, maybe some Christians who are close to me, who are in my family, who are part of my community of faith, who would say, I'm uncomfortable with this. Anything that might challenge my attachment to Adam and Eve and Noah and the ark, I'm uncomfortable with. We shouldn't be thinking that way. We shouldn't be going there. I think Jesus tells us exactly the opposite. That his expectation is that he was telling people on a regular basis throughout all the gospel accounts, the kingdom of heaven is among you. That God's kingdom is here now. He has come to bring God's kingdom on earth. We're supposed to be doing things now that will matter and carry forward on the other side. So what's holding us back? One of the big things that holding, that's holding us back is a couple of key mistakes. I want to first talk about what I would describe as liberal mistakes. Mistakes that li- liberals make in understanding all that we mean when we talk about God. So... Never let it be said that I only look to conservatives and say, you've got a mighty pocket-sized God there. I mean, you can use him like a weapon. He fires off bullets like you wouldn't believe, but he fits right there in the holster. He's a little Jesus you've got. No, I think sometimes liberals do the same thing in terms of having a small enough Jesus. They've got things their Jesus doesn't do. They've got things that their God is not about. Here is Rob Bell once again. For there to be new wine... Someone has to crush the grapes. For the city to be rebuilt, someone has to chop down trees to make the beams to construct the houses. For there to be no more war, someone has to take the sword and get it hot enough in the fire to hammer it into the shape of a plow. This participation is important, because Jesus and the prophets lived with an awareness that God has been looking for partners since the beginning, people who will take seriously their divine responsibility to care for the earth and each other in loving, sustainable ways. They centered their hopes in the God who simply does not give up on creation and the people who inhabit it, the God who is the source of all life, who works from within creation to make something new, the God who can do what humans cannot, the God who gives new spirits and new hearts and new futures. Central to their vision of human flourishing in God's renewed world, then, was the prophet's announcement that a number of things that can survive in this world 
will not be able to survive in the world to come, like war, rape, greed, injustice, violence, pride, division, exploitation, disgrace. Their description of life in the age to come is both thrilling and unnerving at the same time. For the earth to be free of anything destructive and damaging, certain things have to be banished. Decisions have to be made. Judgments have to be rendered. And so they spoke of a cleansing, purging, decisive day when God would make those judgments. They called this day the day of the Lord. The day when God says, enough to anything that threatens the peace. Shalom is the Hebrew word. Harmony and health that God intends for the world. God says no to injustice. God says never again to the oppressors who prey on the weak and the vulnerable. God declares a ban on weapons. It's important to remember this. The next time we hear people say they cannot believe in a God of judgment. Yes, they can. Often we can think of little else. Every oil spill, every report of another woman sexually assaulted, every news report that another political leader has silenced the opposition through torture, imprisonment, and execution, every time we see someone stepped on by an institution or corporation more interested in profit than people, every time we stumble upon one more instance of the human heart gone wrong, we shake our fist and we cry out, Will somebody please do something about this? We crave judgment. We long for it. We thirst for it. Bring it. Unleash it. As the prophet Amos says, let justice roll on like a river. Amos chapter 5. Same with the word anger. When we hear people saying that they can't believe in a God who gets angry, yes, they can. How should God react to a child being forced into prostitution? How should God feel about a country starving while warlords hoard the food supply? What kind of God wouldn't get angry at a financial scheme that robs thousands of people of their life savings? And that is the promise of the prophets in the age to come. God acts decisively on behalf of everybody who's ever been stepped on by the machine, exploited, abused, forgotten, or mistreated. God puts an end to it. God says enough. Of course, to celebrate this, anticipate it, and to find ourselves thrilled by this promise of the world made right brings with it the haunting thought that we each know what lurks in our own heart, our own role in corrupting this world, the litany of ways in which our own sins have contributed to the heartbreak we're surrounded by. All those times we hardened our heart and kept right on walking ignoring the cry of someone in need. And so in the midst of the prophet's announcements about God's judgment, we also find promises about mercy and grace. Isaiah quotes God, saying, Come, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Right in the first chapter of Isaiah. Justice and mercy hold hands. They kiss. They belong together in the age to come. An age that is complex, earthy, participatory, and free from all death, destruction, and despair. When we talk about heaven, then, or eternal life, or the afterlife, any of that, 
It's important that we begin with the categories and claims that people were familiar with in Jesus' first century Jewish world. They did not talk about a future life somewhere else, because they anticipated a coming day when the world would be restored, renewed, and redeemed, and there would be peace on earth. Perhaps it's unfair for me as Greg to point a finger on the left and criticize liberals for this, but I do believe that I hear more often from liberals than I do from conservatives this idea that they believe in a God of love, but not a God of judgment, not a God of wrath. If by that what they're saying is that the Old Testament has been fulfilled, that the laws there and that the stories there were paving the way for Christ, and that as Christians we are following Christ, understanding the story that led up to him, walking the earth, but we're following Christ instead. Well, then I'm, I'm all in, but don't tell me that there's no such thing as a God of wrath. Don't tell me there's no such thing as a God of judgment. I'm not liberal enough to buy those claims. I don't think I would surprise anybody by suggesting that I'm not conservative enough to buy one heck of a lot of things we hear from the religious right. But let me just give an example and let Rob Bell tell the story. Bell highlights many moments in the Gospel according to John, knowing probably as I do that John's Gospel is the favorite of conservative Christianity. Here's what Bell says. John is telling a huge story, one about God rescuing all creation. When people say that Jesus came to die on the cross so that we can have a relationship with God, yes, that is true. But that explanation, as the first explanation, puts us at the center. For the first Christians, the story was first and foremost bigger, grander, more massive. When Jesus is presented only as the answer that saves individuals from their sin and death, we run the risk of shrinking the gospel down to something just for humans. When God has inaugurated a movement in Jesus' resurrection to renew, restore, and reconcile everything on earth or in heaven, just as God originally intended it. The powers of death and destruction have been defeated on the most epic scale imaginable. Individuals are then invited to see their story in the context of a far larger story, one that includes all of creation. As Greg, I would say, one that includes a vastness of universe and a vastness of time that your average conservative Christian simply refuses to comprehend. Back to Bell. Yes, it includes people. The writers were very clear that the good news of the cross and resurrection is for everybody. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that all humanity died through the first humans, so in Christ all will be made alive. He writes to Titus that the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Chapter 2. And then in one of the most epic passages, Paul explains to the Romans that just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all. Chapter 5. He is not alone in this belief. The pastor John writes to his people that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Gospel of John chapter 1, and the first letter of John chapter 2. How many people, if you were to ask them why they've left the church, would give an answer, something along the lines of, it's just so small? That's Bell's question. It's a question I also raise. 
Here's what Bell says. Of course, a gospel that leaves out its cosmic scope will always feel small. A gospel that has as its chief message, avoiding hell or not sinning, will never be the full story. A gospel that repeatedly, narrowly affirms and bolsters the inness of one group at the expense of the outness of another group will not be true to the story that includes all things and people in heaven and on earth. So clearly, as a radical moderate, I'm finding issues, and Bell shares this opinion, from both the right and the left side of the political spectrum. I do think, though, that there's another group besides that, and that I've always maintained that this dichotomy view is is incorrect and it's insufficient. What about the non-Christian questions that get raised? And once again, I think Bell has some food for thought. Quoting him, If you find yourself checking out at this point, checking out at the spiritual story, finding it hard to swallow that Jesus as divine part, remember that these are ultimately issues that ask what kind of universe we believe we're living in. Is it closed or open? Is it limited to what we can conceive of and understand? Or are there realities beyond the human mind? Are we the ultimate arbiter of what can and cannot exist? Or is the universe open, wondrous, unexpected, and far beyond anything we can comprehend? Are you open or closed? Speaking as Greg, I don't want to presume that that question is the distance between agnosticism and atheism, open and closed. I think that's far too simple. Because in fact, when you layer apathy in on top, there isn't really a heck of a lot of difference between the two. But I believe that his question raises questions I've raised before on inappropriate conversations about science. If we believe that nothing else exists, if it cannot be measured and calculated by human minds, then we don't have a very good understanding of the universe. We don't have anywhere near the understanding that we presume to when we so proudly speak about what we know. When Jesus commands us to love the Lord with all of our hearts and souls and strengths and minds, he is speaking about something much larger than we can possibly imagine. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS patient care and research. Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota Chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. I don't want to end this with words of criticism toward people who are outside the target audience for this particular inappropriate conversation. I'm speaking to Christians, primarily here. Christianity 301 presumes that you've somehow made your way through at least the essentials of, you know, Christianity 101. If only the things I talked about in biblical literacy of, you know, stuff that pretty much everybody who interacts with Christians probably ought to know. Or Christianity 201, where you begin to take this whole this whole thing that Jesus did seriously enough to say, why am I still being superstitious? Why am I pres- presuming to follow laws that he died to fulfill? Why am I treating people differently when the entire message of Jesus through every step he took on the path he walked on this earth screams that we should do the exact opposite of what, say, the religious right recommends that we do? But I'm not pointing a finger at atheists. 
I think Rob Bell describes it pretty well here. Do you know any individuals who grew up in a Christian church and then walked away when they got older? Often pastors and parents and brothers and sisters are concerned about them and their spirituality, and often they should be. But sometimes those individuals' rejection of the church and the Christian faith they were presented with as the only possible interpretation of what it means to follow Jesus may in fact be a sign of spiritual health. They may be resisting behaviors, interpretations, and attitudes that should be rejected. Perhaps they simply came to a point where they refused to accept the very sort of things that Jesus would refuse to accept. Some Jesuses should be rejected. Oftentimes I meet with atheists, and we talk about the God they don't believe in. We quickly discover that I don't believe in that God either. So when we hear a certain person has rejected Christ, we first should ask, which Christ? Sadly, we may be asking, have they rejected a Christianity that's 101 level thinking, where Christians are still all about Noah and the ark, still all about fire and brimstone, and haven't reached 201, much less 301, to ask themselves serious questions about what it means to follow, serious questions about the relationship of themselves with something much bigger, big enough to be called God. Because Peter was once one of those men, thought he understood it, thought he had a grip on things, charged with the responsibility to share the gospel, and committed to sharing the gospel either only with Jews or only with Gentiles who would first convert to Judaism. Because Peter had a set of rules that everybody had to follow, and certain people weren't going to be allowed in based on their relationship to those rules. Now let's not presume I'm playing some sort of game here. The law of the Old Testament is clear. If Peter wasn't going to welcome people in because of the food they ate, or whether or not they'd had a certain medical procedure performed upon their anatomy, I guarantee you he wouldn't have let people in based upon their sexual orientation. The angel of the Lord was pretty clear with Peter, and pretty pointed. Do not consider anything unclean that God has declared clean. If the Holy Spirit is living and moving in the lives of someone, their legitimacy, their calling, is true, no matter who they happen to be in love with. This seems like the place to point out that although I clearly believe that there is a Christianity 401, I don't think I'm going to cover it. I'm not expecting a future blog post. I'm not expecting a follow-up to this inappropriate conversation. I feel like I've gone to enough detail to at least start a conversation online, perhaps, maybe on Facebook, if there is one to be had. What would a 401 look like if I did? Well, you start off with a 101 level bringing in the basics, then you layer in what it really means, and then, in 301, we begin to get to this level of speciality, to say, hey, I really am truly focused on Jesus. I really am truly focused on the New Testament, and therefore the disciples and the apostles. And dive in as deeply as you can, and to do so willingly at the exclusion of ideas that came before that don't make sense. There are ideas about the sun revolving around the earth. We don't teach those ideas anymore. They have been supplanted. But in 401, you do reel it in and have to answer the question, well, what of the Old Testament? Now, in the article that's on the website, I did point out the significance of the Old Testament. It does tell the story leading up to the point of who Jesus is. But I don't want anyone to think that I feel the Old Testament has no value 
in the background. There are examples there. What we as Christians might call parables there. Certainly stories and myths. And those give us a way of understanding what does it mean to say, love your neighbor. If the law in the Old Testament commands us to love our neighbor, if that's the one that Jesus attached and taught to his disciples, if that's what Paul affirmed to the church in in Rome and, and elsewhere, well, are there examples that we can look to for that? Are there mistakes where the Old Testament writers call them out as mistakes? Are there good examples where the Old Testament writers hold them out to be praised? Yes, there are. And those stories are incredibly valuable. But I think it's important for us to pull the two together if we were going to go down that 401 path and answer the question, is it loving? Is what the Old Testament tells me to do loving? And if not, there really is no question. There is certainly no conflict of how we should deal with it. We should reject those things, which are not about loving God with all our heart and soul and strength and minds and loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, or perhaps even better than we love ourselves, if we happen to have a certain degree of baseline self-loathing. So let me finish with a hint of what some of the passages would be from a scripture quotation perspective if we're going to go down the line of a 401. I'll keep them short, and I'll only use three. First, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 and 34 says this, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. If you'd prefer a New Testament reference to the book of Jeremiah, might as well look to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16, actually quotes this passage. The other one that I like to refer to is Ezekiel chapter 36, in this case, verses 26 to 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. What do these particular biblical references mean? What should we do with them when it comes to looking at a 401 level of study? Well, to me, it's an acknowledgement something Jesus teaches really throughout the last parts of John's gospel. There are two or three chapters running of Jesus describing in detail the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit will do, and it's not at all coincidental that it harkens back to these particular prophets and their notion that we will be getting the law written on our hearts. Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit will guide you as to what to do and what not to do, and because there is one God. That one God is going to speak the same message, whether it's walking the earth thousands of years ago, face-to-face with individuals, whether it's you know from on high inspiring people to record prophetic visions and, and hand them down through an oral tradition and eventually have them written, or whether it's the Holy Spirit living within us, guiding us on the exact same path. Is it loving? Because if it's not, There are no rules we have to follow. Is the Spirit leading? And if the Spirit is not leading, 
if we are instead being led by rules. We need to stop in our tracks, get our hearts right, refine our relationship, and say, hey, this is a heart of flesh I'm supposed to have here. It's supposed to be real. It's supposed to be breathing and growing and living. It's not some cold words on a stone tablet. And guess what? If the, if the Spirit isn't leading, and if what is written on our hearts isn't loving, then we are allowed to ignore all those aspects of what came before and what Jesus came to replace. Because if we're not following the Spirit, then there is no covenant whatsoever. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. The website has show notes enabled at www.inappropriateconversations.org. I also interact on a regular basis through Facebook on the Inappropriate Conversations page, but also on the Walk the Earth page. If I do hit more of a Christianity 301 and 401 approach in the future, it's probably more likely to show up on the Walk the Earth podcast than on the Inappropriate Conversations podcast. And finally, you can find me on Twitter at IC underscore Greg. Thanks for listening.